Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Throughout the past few generations in the holiness movement, there have been literally dozens of men who had a gift of oratory. One of those is Larry Smith. He preached this message at God's Bible School and College camp meeting in 2011, and he titles it, Serving Our Generation According to the Will of God. I know you'll enjoy this excellent message. I'm from Nebraska where windmills are still quite in evidence and you know windmills run on water and so uh, I have sort of a habit of carrying my water around with me sometimes sometimes I think to drink it and sometimes I don't but I'm so glad to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus this Sabbath morning I'm glad that you're here I hope that you're glad that you're here I'm glad that uh, my daughter Miriam and her family are here this morning. Blessed be our Lord. Praise be to him this Sabbath day. I would like to ask you to stand for the reading of the scripture lesson. I am turning this morning to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts. The 13th chapter of the book of Acts this morning, beginning in the reading of the lesson at verse 32. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he raised up Jesus again, as it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another place, another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you. We have heard these words from your holy book. 
And we pray now, Lord, that as we try to ponder their meaning, that you will bless those words to our hearts. Speak through lips of clay. Touch my own heart, my mind, my soul, my voice. And touch in the hearts and minds of all of your dear people gathered here this Lord's Day. And may we sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We ask in his blessed name, amen. You may be seated. I am lifting for a text this morning the 36th verse of this 13th chapter of the book of Acts. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid into his father's and saw corruption. Do you remember the stories of King Arthur, that noblest of all the great legendary heroes of English-speaking people all over the world? You remember those stories from childhood, don't you? Riding on prancing war horses and wearing shining armor, sometimes to the roll of drums and the blare of trumpets. King Arthur and his valiant knights of the round table would set out from their storied castle Camelot to fight dragons, rescue maidens in distress, and defeat the forces of evil. Now I know these stories are filled with romantic fantasy, though the historians tell us there probably really was a King Arthur. Perhaps he was an historic, heroic, Christian chieftain who long centuries before the medieval stories had actually lived in England battling against pagan forces who were determined to destroy his kingdom and to persecute Christians. In any case, King Arthur's noble exploits came to a tragic and bloody end in a rebellion led by Mordred the traitor. Except for the loyal Sir Bedivere, all the knights of the round table now lie dead, and the king himself is suffering from mortal wounds. Lovingly, Bedivere lifts his king and carries him to the edge of a lake, where after the bidding of Arthur, he reluctantly throws the great king Arthur isn't coming back. Perhaps if the old stories tell us anything at all that is true about him, he did act nobly and courageously, rendering his heroic duty as a king and as a Christian. Yes, even acting according to the will of God as he understood it. For the old medieval stories are always Christian so far as their ultimate outcome is concerned. And if Arthur died in Christ, he is now at rest with all the faithful departed who await the archangel's trumpet on resurrection morning. But one thing is very clear. Arthur isn't coming back to do for us what we must do for ourselves. Arthur isn't coming back. And neither is King David, another warrior king who was faithful noble and courageous. Vividly, and you've read the stories again and again, vividly the Bible tells us about King David. 
in colorful and extended narrative. And David is the focus of what I have to say to you this morning. Think then of him, that courageous, good-looking, but unlikely shepherd boy who was to become Israel's greatest king and whose royal line will be carried on forever in the life and reign of his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithfully, David did what God had called him to do, and we honor him for doing that. But David isn't coming back any more than King Arthur is coming back to do for us in our generation what God has summoned us to do. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep, as our textbook declares, and he was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. Now these words are from St. Paul's magnificent address at the synagogue at Antioch in Pisidia. On his first missionary journey, the great apostle had come there to this important commercial city to bear witness to the Lord Jesus. And there on the Sabbath, he is given public opportunity to do that. In his dramatic conclusion, Paul points to Jesus' resurrection, quoting from Psalm 16, Thou wilt not suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. That is, the Messiah long foretold by the ancient prophets would never ever undergo the natural decay that comes to a dead body lying in a grave. Paul emphasizes that this promise could not possibly refer to David, great hero of Israel that he was. Yes, David had served his generation by the will of God, but then he fell on sleep, and then he was gathered unto his fathers, and yes, then his body saw corruption. But in contrast, Jesus, whom God had raised again from the dead, saw no corruption. David's service was limited to the natural span of one human life. But Christ's service is for endless ages, forever and ever. And though he died in atonement for our sins and was laid in the cold recesses of the grave, our Lord Jesus saw no corruption but was raised in power and glory from the dead in the great central miracle of our Christian faith. And so Paul's focus that Sabbath morning was on Jesus, really not on David. And yet what he said about David was surely inspired by the Holy Spirit for our prophet. And it speaks powerfully to us this Lord's Day morning about our duty, our devotion, and our destiny. Like David, we face powerful enemies. And at times we seem almost overwhelmed by them. And frankly, there is much to dismay us and even to discourage us as we face our culture all around us careening to utter disaster. And many people certainly believe that it is true that disaster is close upon us. And we do know this as our forefathers said, the mills of God may grind slowly, but they grind exceeding fine. And yet, we desperately, you and I here this morning on the hilltop, 
and Christians everywhere how desperately we need a new sense of excitement and even thrill about God's call to throw ourselves relentlessly, joyfully, and faithfully into the service of God as David did in his generation, assured that God will give us victory and strength as he gave to David and he has given to Christians in every age and time. So what then does the Spirit say to us this morning as we turn the thoughts, our thoughts to the words of our text? First, I submit to you that he points us to our appointed service, the Christian duty to which he calls us all. For David served his generation by the will of God. Consider then the heroic life that David gave so generously to his people. Think of every chapter of that long and fruitful life. David, the shepherd boy, shielding his sheep from ravenous bears and lions. David, as the young musician, trying to calm a murderous king. David, as a brave soldier, leading his followers against powerful enemies. David, as the great psalmist, who has blessed the world with his songs of joy and hope. David, the famous monarch, directing the fortunes of his nation. David, as an earnest believer, offering prayers and praises to God and collecting materials for the temple which he would never build. And then David, as the dying father, exhorting Solomon, his son, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show thyself steadfast as a man. Nor was David the only king to set this pattern of steadfast service. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself, that great King of kings and Lord of lords, has done the same. And scripture exhorts us to follow his example. Remember those words in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, literally the form of a bond slave, and was made in the likeness of men. Yet, my friends this morning, hear me, the scripture enjoins us, this mind, this same attitude that was in Jesus must also be in us, framing and shaping our lives, motivating all that we do from the moment of our conversion until at last we too, like David, shall go the way of all flesh. I think that Jesus, the humble servant of God and the humble servant of his people, of both sinners and saints, is one of the most compelling portraits that we have of our Lord in the Gospels. Do you remember that Thursday evening so long ago, immediately before his passion and death, how that after supper he arose from the table and laying aside his outer garments, according to St. John, took a towel and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now washing the dusty feet of guests was not the duty of the host at a banquet, 
but it was the work of servants. But the Savior of the world, our Lord Jesus, he who according to the Nicene Creed is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, did that humble and menial service as an example to all of us who claim to follow him. Remember too in St. Matthew 20 how our, how our Lord unfolds this same principle. And whosoever desires to be first among you, let him be your servant, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to, come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You may have heard the story of Henry Martin, one of the most brilliant and cultivated students in the early years of the 19th century at Cambridge University. A brilliant young man whom everybody thought was headed for a brilliant career, perhaps as a lawyer or a professor at Cambridge. But after a clear-cut experience of evangelical conversion, Henry heard God's call to India. But his great honors at the university pointed him another way, to a path of wealth and success and leisure, and his friends could not possibly understand why an intelligent young man like Henry Martin would ever be willing to bury himself alone somewhere among the heathen. Fiercely, the battle raged within him. But finally, Henry Martin settled the issue, as you and you and I must settle the issue to the very depths of our soul. He would answer God's call. He would go to India. But here was the catch. Henry loved a beautiful young woman by the name of Lydia, whom he wished to marry. And though Lydia loved him too, she was emphatic. She was not going to those dirty pagans in far off India. Henry agonized day after day over the matter. How could he ever give up his beloved Lydia? But one morning after agonizing in prayer through the night before, he wrote in his journal, my dear Lydia and my duty call me different ways. Yet God hath not forsaken me, but strengthened me. And so at the age of 24, Henry Martin left for India alone. He never forgot Lydia, but his purpose was set. He translated the New Testament into Hindi and Persian, rendering faithful service in India as a missionary. But then he died of tuberculosis and fever at the age of 31, but leaving for us a wonderful legacy of faithful obedience in the service of God. Sometimes earlier he had written, I am born for God only. Christ is dearer to me than father or mother or sister, a nearer relative, a more intimate friend, and I rejoice to follow him and to love him. Let me remind you too that every inch of this hillside campus of ours is sanctified by the feet of saints who have taken the gospel everywhere, some as missionaries, evangelists, pastors, and laypersons working here in the homeland, and others as missionaries going to the most distant parts of the world. Once as students at God's Bible School, they sat here in this auditorium exactly where you are sitting this morning. 
Once at this same altar, they settled the question to sacrificial service. Once they left this campus to do their master's work, and how many there will be on that day who shall rise up and call them blessed. Every inch of this campus that our forebears called the Mount of Blessings is sanctified by the footprints of the saints. Think of Nettie, or think of Charles Kalman and his wife who went to Japan, trusting the future wholly to God's hand as they wrote. And there they established what was to become the most effective work in the Orient, a church of martyrs, a church of faithfulness, a church that lifted high the cross even in the agonies of Nazi persecution in Korea. Think of Claudie Payton this morning, that frail little girl from West Virginia who came here to this campus determined to answer her call to Africa. No mission board would send Claudie to Africa because the doctors were convinced that she was so frail that she wouldn't live a year in that climate. And so Claudie saved her wages and went on her own account, sending, settling at last in Zambia, where she gave 54 years, did you hear me, 54 years of service in the name of Jesus, working especially for the care of abandoned children. Think of those 10 heroic boys from God's Bible School who went to help Charles Kalman. That's one of the greatest stories in our history. Those 10 young men from God's Bible School and College who went in 1917 from this campus to help evangelize Japan. And they stayed with it for a year and a half until every home in Japan had been touched with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder Charles Kalman said, every one of those boys came with the victory. Every one of them worked here with the victory. And every one of them left with the victory. There is still a powerful reminder in this very room this morning of God's Bible School's tradition of faithful Christian service. Behind me are some of the most beautiful stained glass windows in our holiness movement anywhere. If you look at them, they're done with great finesse and carefulness. They're not some crude work done by some aspiring but stunted artist. Those beautiful windows were placed here in 1930 when this building was almost completed. Standing right here where I am standing, President Stanley talked to his congregation crowded into this room. And he said, you remember those throngs of little children that come here on Thanksgiving Day. Many of you have read those stories and some of us have wept over them. During the Depression, over 20,000 children brought here year after year by truck and horse-drawn vehicle and later by bus and by streetcar. They came into this very room crowded to the walls where they were given a message of the gospel and a goodie bag. And then they were sent all over this campus to be fed, in many cases, the only time of the year when their bellies were filled and they went to bed full at night. President Stanley said from this pulpit, he said, I would like to bring some beauty into the lives of those little street urchins that come to us on Thanksgiving Day to hear the gospel. And that means I would like to put some beautiful stained glass windows in the chapel to remind them of Jesus and his love. 
And so the GBS community responded, and that's the reason those windows are there. And very often when I come into this chapel, sometimes when it's empty and sometimes when it's full, and I look at the window as the light filters through them, especially this one here to your left and my right, of Jesus blessing the little children. I think of those dirty little street urchins that sat one day where you're sitting this morning, those thousands and thousands of them who first heard the gospel of Jesus Christ right here on this campus. And that window is a perpetual reminder of that tradition of service. Let me suggest to you this morning, my dear friends, that God still walks this tiny campus to call young men and women in this generation to serve him according to the will of God. This, preach, this means preacher boy. Listen to me. This means preacher boy. An absolute willingness to go wherever God has called you. Everywhere, even if it means to all seven members of First Church down there in Punkin Holler, where you will serve as a struggling bivocational pastor that is largely forgotten in the big circles of our movement. This means young women serving in some small Christian school, teaching little ones whose parents are not able to pay you what you really should deserve. This means that we must all deny every purely selfish ambition and offered and willing sacrifice to God. This means that we must consecrate all our energies, all our resources, all our purposes, all our plans to God's holy purposes. This must mean that we lay down our dearest treasures, our most intense desires, our costliest sacrifices at the feet of Jesus, surrendering them all to him, holding back nothing. It is all his. All around us, lying in our cemeteries, are those tens of thousands of early Methodists, and you knew I would get to them eventually. I'm there. They're lying all around us in our cemeteries, here in Cincinnati, out where you live, tens and tens of thousands of them, who, like Francis there, Asbury, serve their generation according to the will of God. We would not be here for them, for their church, the old Methodist Episcopal Church at the frontier, the church of our great-grandparents, was then the holiness movement in America, the great-grandmother of all of us. We would not be here this morning except for their fortitude, their courage, and their faithfulness. There is no better example in all the history of the Christian church than those valiant young circuit preachers, many of them no older than many of you here this morning, and some of them even younger, who plunged courageously into the American wilderness, supported by that vast number of faithful local preachers, exhorters, class leaders, Sunday school teachers, and praying, shouting Methodists who together took our frontier for Jesus Christ and for the holiness message. Many of their names are forgotten now, and many of their graves are unmarked. But God has not forgotten them. And one day on resurrection morning, he shall speak their names again. Sometimes as I tell my students, if you have any imagination at all, you can almost hear the clip-clop, clip-clop, clip-clop of the horses of that great holiness army who fanned out across America and who served their generation according to the will of God. Amen. 
And God is calling you, my friend, to do the same. But our text this morning does not only speak of our appointed service, it also speaks of our limited tenure. David served his generation by the will of God. This means that King David gave himself to the service of his people, understanding their needs, sharing their aspirations, feeling the heartthrob of their lives, all in the brief span of years that God was pleased to give him. This is what we mean by limited tenure. Tenure means holding or possessing anything as the tenure of one appointed to political or religious office. And sooner or later, that tenure must be given up. David served his generation by the will of God for the limited tenure of his lifetime, and then David gave it up, as you and I will very shortly give up the tenure of our service. Now I know that there were terrible failures in David's life, as in the sordid affair of Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. The Bible is open about this, and so ought we to be. But in his repentance, no one could have been harder on David than he was on himself, as someone has said. For my sin is ever before me. Against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O thou God of my salvation. If David's sins were great, his repentance and then his restoration were even greater. It is no wonder that God said of him, and this is God's own statement about David, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart to do my own will. And so we are called likewise to be men and women who will be after God's heart, centering ourselves in his purposes and giving ourselves to our generation during the limited tenure that God has given us. As my students know, I love history. I wish everybody loved history. I can understand why everybody doesn't love history. And yet I know that we cannot live in the past. We can certainly profit from its examples and its lessons, but there is nothing more futile than trying to recreate some past generation mumbling over sacred relics preserved in embalming fluid and encased in glass. Nothing is more futile than this, trying to live in the past, except perhaps trying to live in the future, trying somehow to live in some future never-never land filled with dreamy and unrealistic goals, consoling ourselves with impossible dreams that never ever shall be fulfilled. And so the emphasis of the Bible is always now. This is now our day and generation. This is now the time of our life and ministry. It's true as we say, yesterday is gone and tomorrow may never come. So our commitment must be the same as the commitment of our blessed Savior who told his disciples, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night cometh, the night cometh when no man shall work. Every wise Christian remembers that the night is coming. He or she is a person under orders, a commissioned steward who knows that very shortly 
God shall say to every one of us, Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Everywhere around us, the battle of the ages is raging this morning. The forces of entrenched evil mock our Lord Jesus Christ, whom once they crucified. They hate everything for which he stands, determined to overthrow his rule and to destroy his church. My friends, this morning, you do not have leisure to play games with the enemy. You don't have time to play footsie with the devil this morning. You don't have time to waste your life in fudging and compromises, ignoring the real issues of your life. You don't have time to engage in a mere shallow emotional religion of spasms and emotional occasional good intentions. You don't have the option of trifling with evil, indulging in your pet and darling sins, spending your time with your toys and trinkets, and playing with the world and all that it stands for, what the Bible calls the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Simply, you can't be neutral. Did you hear me? You can't be neutral this morning. Now is your time to throw yourself unreservedly into Jesus' cause, letting him have every bit of you, every bit of you, no holes, bars, no reservations. Now is the time, now and forever. For Jesus says to every one of us, as he said so long ago, if any man, any woman, any boy or girl will come after me, let him deny himself. Did you hear that? If you would come after Jesus, this isn't a time for play games. The battle is surging. Cast your lot on Jesus' side. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Once to every man and nation comes a moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side, some great cause, some great decision, offering each the bloom or blight. And the choice goes on forever. And it does, the choice goes on forever. Twixt the darkness and the light. Catherine Booth was one of those who made that choice between truth and falsehood, with determined grit and sanctifying grace. She left the comforts of her middle-class parsonage and joined her husband, William, in ministry to the degraded low lives of society. And with him, she founded the Salvation Army, which was intended at this beginning as a great holiness crusade to bring light and power to the lost and the last and the least of our culture. They adopted the motto, blood and fire, and that's still the motto of the Salvation Army. Blood and fire, blood and fire, the blood of Jesus, the flames of the Spirit. With him, Catherine plunged into the filthy ghettos of London, ministering to the prostitutes, the pimps, and the drunkards in the name of Jesus. And when she died and was laid out for public viewing, it was said that those forsaken and forgotten ones, the prostitutes, the pimps, and the drunkards to whom she had ministered and who loved her so well because they knew she had loved them so well, came flocking by her open coffin 
And they wept tears so fully and copiously that they actually flooded her body with tears. So it was said that Catherine Booth, in her death, could not have been more wet if she had been dipped in the Thames River. The tears of those she served. Catherine died of a horrible cancer, but just before she died, she sent this message to the Salvation Army. The waters are rising! The waters are rising, but so am I. I am not going under, but I am going over. Don't be concerned about your dying. Only go on living well, and the dying will be all right. Yes, my friends, be sure that you're living well, pouring out your life in your own span of years, the limited tenure of your service. And when that tenure is over, the dying will be all right. Thirdly, and finally, our text speaks to us this morning not only of our appointed service and our limited tenure, but it also speaks of our steadfast purpose. David served his generation by the will of God. This means that David, Israel's ancient warrior king, offered his steadfast service according to the design, the counsel, the purpose of God. And this is why, according to Psalm 78, that God chose David, also his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. God is still looking for those who will serve him and serve their times according to his will, according to the integrity of their heart and by, their, and by the willing skillfulness of their hands. There are plenty of fellow travelers. There's plenty of religious hopefuls. The kind of people that are always saying they're going to serve God, but they never get around to doing it, or if they do, it isn't for very long. The acid test is not religious-sounding professions, but a faithful life given to doing the will of God, given to doing the will of God as Jesus our Lord came to do the will of God. Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. To serve our generation with steadfast purpose, I submit to you means first that we do so with joy. Joy, which as you may recall, is one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. There's no time for pity parties, no time for grumping and griping and wishing we lived at some other time. This is where God has put us. Thanks be to God for his wisdom and grace. Joy is not merely the amusement of temporary release that comes from a pleasurable experience. As Dr. Wilton Dayton, that fine old holiness scholar, has reminded us, rather joy is the basic attitude or habit of the soul, where all is right because Christ is king and life is fully by the Spirit. Emotional excitement comes and goes, but Christian joy is deeper and more steadfast, springing from the deep wells of satisfaction that comes from reconciliation and relationship with God. Yet as Dr. William Sangster reminds us, there are times <coughs> when this inner joy does produce 
a boisterous abandonment produced by the Spirit in the hearts and lives of his saints. This happened at Pentecost, you remember. And whenever the living water has burst fresh from the rock again, as Dr. Sangster says, the same exuberant gladness, hey, glad to be in the service of God, has been manifested. The early Franciscans had it. The early Methodists, the early Salvation Army people, those early Franciscans, those humble followers in the Middle Ages of Francis of Assisi, actually had to be reproved for laughing in church because they were so happy in Christ. Those pioneer Methodist forebears of ours, those shouting Methodist forebears, stormed the unbelieving world with their songs of joy and gladness. Sangster tells a story of a rather dour Anglican church organist who had little time for the Salvation Army. And so one day, when he met up with a boy that played the drum in the gospel band, he actually chided that boy for beating the band, beating the drum so loud. The beaming bandsman replied, why, Lord bless you, sir, since I've been converted, I'm so happy I could bust the blooming drum. May I say sometimes for all of God's people, there are times that we too feel like we could bust the blooming drum in our excitement to follow Jesus. But even when that exuberance subsides, the joy of the Lord is still our strength. To serve our generation with steadfast means, purpose means secondly, that we shall do so with faithfulness. That is with deep commitment that we never ever will go back, that we never will give in, we'll never sell out. Do you hear me this morning? Uh, no intention ever to backslide, onward, forward. I have put my hand to the plow and with God's help, I am not looking back. This is not to suggest that earnest Christians never falter, for sometimes the Spirit reproves them painfully for having grieved Him. But though they may wince beneath the chastening rod, they love the hand that wields that rod. Hey, remember my students in that personal piety class, the third verse of I want a principle within, how often our old Methodist forebears sang it, and you remember those words, say them with me, if to the right or left I stray, that moment, Lord, reprove, and let me weep my life away for having grieved thy love. Oh, may the least omission pain my well-instructed soul and drive me to the blood again that makes the wounded whole. So often they resort to the Savior's blood that makes them whole, refreshed and determined to do God's will at whatever cost. Remember, kids, it's not, as the old poem says, it's not the wind or the gale, but the set of the sail that makes the difference. The same wind that blows one ship to destruction upon the jutting rocks will blow another ship home safe into the harbor. It's all about the way you set your sail. So set your sail towards New Jerusalem. Once I remember Ina Shreve, that determined missionary to China, later to Cuba, and finally to southern Florida. I remember Sister Shreve told me once that when she was here at God's Bible School many, many years ago, one of her teachers, I think it was Brother Marsh, was warning his class 
about the dangers of compromise and surrender to spiritual, to, to those spiritual enemies that surround us. And he said, statistics show that only 10% of you will ever wind up being a lifelong Christian. 10%. Though I know that's not very encouraging, but Ines Reeve took the challenge. She told me then and there, I determined that I would be among that 10%. And so she was, bearing fruit, clear down to old age. Another one of God's Bible school's daughters that lived well and served well and ended well. To serve our generation with steadfast purpose means, thirdly, that we will do so with hope. And hope is confident expectation that God will never fail us and that he will keep all of his promises. In a stained glass window in Salem Church, that old frame church where I served so long out on the Nebraska prairies, there is a stained glass window up by the pulpit upon which is painted an anchor. I have often looked upon that anchor, remembering that hope is the anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, as the writer of the Hebrews reminds us. That anchor grips God himself and his unyielding truth. I think one of the reasons for our discouragement is the painful loss of hope among us. We seem utterly overwhelmed by the powerful forces of evil that, that, that press so painfully around us. But remember, friends, we're not in this alone. Remember how Jesus promised, as Brother Jones reminded us yesterday morning, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. All power, power in heaven where he is and power on earth where we are. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Remember also that our Lord has promised that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against his church. Any one of you here over 40 will remember when the Berlin Wall crumbled to the ground and communist regimes were falling all over Europe. That wasn't the way it was supposed to be. People of my generation were raised by parents and grandparents who were sure that communism was the wave of the future and very soon Russian tanks were to be rattling down our streets. But saints, their watch are keeping and in answer to prayer and the fervent and earnest purposes of certain of our honorable leaders, the day came when the statues of Marx and Lenin were overthrown from pedestals all over Europe and reduced to rubble. I have often thought that day in the Kremlin, at the very heart of the old communist empire, those great cathedral churches that have been turned into museums, the great church bells, there poised in the belfries, had been silent for 70 years by official church, athe church athe or official state atheism. And then one day, one day someone began to tug on the ropes down below. And for the first time in 70 years, those great bells of those cathedral churches chimed out over the Kremlin. After 70 years, I've often thought those pigeons must have had a great surprise. <laughs> and so the gates of hell shall not prevail. 
As Christians, we are part of the noblest cause this world has ever seen. Whatever the struggle, whatever the reverses, whatever the suffering, our hearts are filled with the hope of the final triumph when all the earth, all the caves, and the dens of the earth shall echo the triumph song. Hallelujah! The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. In conclusion, perhaps many of you have heard the story of John and Betty Stamm, those heroic Christian martyrs who as young people went to Moody Bible Institute and there at Moody in Bible College, just like you're in Bible College, that young man and that young woman settled it to hear Christ's call and to answer it as missionaries to China. And there in China, within that all-walled city, they bore faithful witness to our Lord. But in December 1939, communist bandits seized the city, broke down their door, and took John and Betty prisoner. As an article in the Voice of the Martyrs tells the story, the intruders, those communist bandits, commanded, take off your outer clothes and your shoes. You're coming with us. The Stams prayed silently for strength, and they looked at each other. They knew what those orders meant. They were to be executed. Outer garments would interfere with the thrust of the executioner's sword. Betty tried not to look at Helen Priscilla, their little three-month-old child, lest she would attract attention to her. She had hidden two five-dollar bills in Helen's blanket during the night. It was just enough to cover the cost of that little girl's journey over the Chinese mountains to reach her grandparents after her parents were martyred. They were paraded in shame through the streets, then thrust into a mud hut to spend the night. Somehow John was able that night in that little mud hut to write a letter to the leaders of the China Inland Mission saying this, my wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of communist bandits. Whether we shall be released or not, no one knows. May God be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death. They were taken to the execution place. John's final act was to plead for the life of another. But those pleas were silenced by the sword that severed his head. Betty trembled for a moment, for she had seen what had been done to her husband. The sword flashed again, and she fell lifeless beside him. Later, when their coffins were opened, according to an eyewitness, John's lips were parted in an expectant smile. But for Betty, it was different. On her face, serenity was blended with terror and consternation. But that was all many years ago now, my friends. Their bodies lie in a little Christian cemetery there in China, the country where they serve so well their generation by the will of God. And like David, when the service came to an end, they fell asleep to await the final glory. 
My friends, the final glory should never be very far away from any of our thoughts. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. In a letter written sometime before his death, John Stamm had written his father back in the United States of the dangers that they faced in China, but how he and Betty determined to be faithful whatever happened. And then he quoted this poem that expressed his deepest feelings. Afraid? Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace? The strife and strain of life to cease? Afraid? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face? To hear his welcome and to trace the glory gleam from his wounds of grace? Afraid? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, darkness, and then light, light, O oh heaven's art, a wound of his counterpart. Afraid? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not? To baptize with blood a stony plot till souls shall blossom from that spot? Afraid? Afraid of that? Yes, it was at Bible College at Moody that John and Betty Stam settled the issue. They would be faithful. And yes, it is true they did by their death what their lives could not do. And it is true that they baptized with their own blood a stony plot. But it's also true that all over that spot today, souls are blossoming. And thanks to their faithfulness and the faithfulness of so many others, China, oppressed communist China, has become one of the most flourishing Christian communities in the world. And all, all their leaders can do cannot stop the growth of the Christian church. Let me enlist you this morning that like John and Betty Stam, and like King David, and yes, even King Arthur, and all the great army of those who have served their generation by the will of God. Afraid? Afraid of what? The heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't